Welcome to the second choice in our choose your own adventure type week on 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack. We are on question 39B. That question is, can heaven be tortured out of us? So if you missed the premise, if you missed the episode we released a couple days ago, we're doing something new and novel for our show this week. We're releasing two episodes dealing with the same issue but taking two different answers. I know, we're taking positions. First time we've ever done it, but we're still kind of twisting the screw on you because the two answers we're giving for that question are diametrically opposed to each other. All right, so strap back, enjoy the ride. If you already listened to the last episode, just take a big breath and then sigh. Everything's gonna be okay. Here we go. Music, draw us in. Alrighty now, we're looking at the question, can heaven be tortured out of us? So we're talking about the idea that if you recant your faith, is that ripping up your ticket into heaven? Is eternal life not going to be extended to you? And we're basing this thought process around a couple key verses, such as this one, Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 and 33. This is Jesus speaking. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, so this is a problem verse. This is a dink, right? This passage, taken out of context just on its own, appears to be stipulating a rule that in order to inherit eternal life, you must continue to proclaim Jesus as Lord until your dying breath. That renouncing him is renouncing your faith, renouncing any claim you have to eternal life. Along with that, we have passages such as this, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Again, this is Jesus speaking. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So that verse, along with several other passages that we talked about in part A, established this kind of idea that being a Christian costs a lot. The cost of discipleship, the cost of following Jesus is your very life, is potentially being tortured, and you have to endure that for the sake of the gospel. And if you don't, you have no claim to heaven. And I talked about last episode how I just read this historical fiction book about Japanese missionaries in the 17th century. And the most gruesome torture, I think, that, well, there's many tortures in that book, but perhaps the most gruesome torture that is employed upon Japanese Christians in that book is called, succinctly, the pit. And these Christians were tied horrendously tight and then left hanging on a rope in a pit. So, so obviously it's, you know, your generic blood's rushing to your head type of business, but the sneaky aspect of this, and that makes it all the more unbearable, is that the torturers would cut a chunk of flesh out from just under your ear so that when all the blood's rushing to your head 
rather than just like causing you to go brain dead or, or overflowing your brain with blood or whatever, causing death by, I forget what that technical term is called, but death by blood to the head, the cuts under the ears cause that blood just to run out. So you don't die that way, but you obviously are enduring this pain and you feel as if you're constantly dying. Like, blood's rushing to your head, but then instead of but then instead of overwhelming your brain and causing your circuits not to work and all that stuff, it just is slowly seeping out and dripping down from your ears, or just under your ears. And so you can live this way for days. And the main character ends up renouncing his faith, not by enduring this torture, but by listening to the moans of the people being tortured. And when you hear stuff like that, the utter agony of it, you just think, well, crap. If I'm in that situation, it's it's a crapshoot. I have no idea whether I'm going to endure something like that. How could I? I have no spectrum for knowing if I've got the metal, I've got the type of stuff inside of me to endure torture. And even if I do, what's the likelihood? Like, okay, if you took every Christian on earth right now and you torture them, what do you think the percentage is that's going to renounce? Well, I heard from a friend of mine that the number of Roman Christians, Christians in the first and second centuries that were tortured, about 75% of them ended up recanting their faith. Myriads of those 75% tried to get back into the church, and eventually the apostolic fathers did let them in, but 75% of the Christian population broke under torture. And I feel like with today's modern techniques of torture and knowing the physics of how the body works, that number could be much, much higher. Maybe 100%. Because who can endure? Who can endure that? It would take supernatural intervention for you not to endure. And maybe God provides that, but what if he doesn't? So then, your ticket to heaven just became, all you gotta do is give your sins, confess the name of Jesus, which, let's be frank, is relatively an easy thing to do. It doesn't, at least initially, cost me anything. It just, it just costs me some humility some brokenness to say, I'm desperate enough to run to you, Jesus. That's all I have to do right now in 21st century America to claim Christianity. And as far as I understand scriptures, you know, John 3, 16, whosoever believeth in him, I can be a whosoever really easily. But if the cost of that is also enduring under torture, well then, now the cost is really, really hard to get to. It's hard to be a conqueror in that situation. And it makes me think of, like, the Knights Templar. A few weeks back, I guest-hosted a history podcast called 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And I covered the history of the Knights Templar. And at the end, when they're being persecuted by the church, it's almost comical because they get tortured. So they renounce the Knights Templar and say, actually, we are an evil organization that worships all these demons and does horrible, horrible things. But then, as soon as they're done with the torture... They go out in a public square and they proclaim, No! Everything I said was wrong! Don't believe the lies! I had to lie because I couldn't endure it anymore. And then the authorities get them again, torture them again, they renounce their renouncing, and it's just like back and forth, back and forth. And it's like the same group of people turning on their words because they have to under various torture. And then when they actually have some moment of freedom, they exclaim the truth out again, only to renounce it the next day when they're tortured again. How can God hold us accountable under that type of duress? He made us flesh and blood. When my blood is being boiled, does he really expect me to endure? And when I look for a clause, like a way out, like a, a get-out-of-jail-free card here, I think to myself, 
is there any example in the Bible of someone who, you know, supposedly blasphemed the Spirit by renouncing, who is still blessed, who still gets to walk in heaven, who's still beloved of God? And the answer's easy. I don't have to go very far at all. Friggin' Peter, one of the main three apostles of Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, right? This is Peter who confesses to Jesus moments before Jesus' captured and put on trial. I will go with you anywhere, Jesus. I will die with you if that's what it takes. And then moments later, three times in a row, probably the most famous story associated with Peter. Peter says, no, I don't know Jesus. I was, I was never around him. And it's like a schoolgirl walking up to him and being like, hey, aren't you with Jesus? And that's all it took. Peter wasn't tortured. And he was like a big brute of a man. He was called the rock. If anyone shouldn't break the rock, shouldn't break, but he breaks so easy. And then Jesus resurrects and he shows up again. And here's the account of what happens when Jesus appears to Peter. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Peter, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Peter, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Jesus said to him a third time, Peter, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved then because Jesus said to him a third time, Do you love me? And Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. And then for context here, I'll read the next few verses, though it's kind of making a different point. Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Verse 19. This he said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Okay, we have this paradigm that is just heartbreaking and wonderful. Peter had renounced Christ three times. And so now, When Jesus is in his glory, when he's already overcome death, he comes to Peter and he says, Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? And the pain and guilt and shame Peter must have felt. Surely he knew what Jesus was alluding to here. It was like a a forgiveness, a, a washing over of Peter's betrayal three times over. Love me once for that one time you renounced me. Love me twice for that second time. Love me again a third time. And it's painful and Peter's grieved. But he answers it. And Jesus affirms him and says, follow me, tend my sheep, lead the people. And then at the end, he prophesies, telling Peter how Peter's going to die. And tradition holds, though this isn't in scripture, that Peter dies on a cross just like Jesus. But as he's being led to the cross, he doesn't want the honor of dying like Jesus died. So he asks that they flip the cross upside down, that he would die hanging upside down. And tradition tells us that's how it goes. So surely then, renouncing Jesus in a moment of duress, when you're being tortured, when your family is being ripped away from you, and I know this sounds overdramatic, but this is happening right now in the Middle East. In Syria, in Lebanon, in parts of Turkey, where ISIS is, this sort of scenario is playing out on a wide scale. But the biblical answer seems to be, there's still forgiveness for you. Even if fear overtakes you and you become a coward in that moment when you should stand mighty. Remember Paul's comforting words. This is Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any change against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Surely God can see past the torture. Surely God is mightier than the ISIS man. Surely God will not let that torturer separate us from him. That guy's not going to stand in our way. God's not going to let that happen. Jesus says to come to him like a child. And I remember being a child, and I remember doing wrong. But even after doing wrong, you still run back to your parents. You still return to him, who is your your father, your mother. So can heaven be tortured out of us? No. Don't be silly. I want to end with this other story about Peter. This is from John chapter 6, starting in verse 66. And the context for this is Jesus just gave, like, a really bizarre sermon. And everyone's kind of twirling their thumbs and leaving town because they think this new prophet guy, Jesus, is just bonkers. And the text reads, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. So he said to the twelve, his twelve disciples, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I confess, even if I renounce under torture, I'm still going to come back like a swatted dog or a child who's hungry and turn right back around to God and say, Lord, where else am I going to go? Even if you close heaven's gates on me because I blaspheme the Spirit, I'm still going to knock on that gate. I got nowhere else to go. You're the only one. Can heaven be tortured out of us? No, stop it. It can't be. That's not how God works. Read the friggin' Bible. (laughs) (laughs) This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. Okay, if you happen to miss it and you want the depressing version of this question, go back, listen to question 39A to get the opposite answer. Let me know if you guys thought this was a fun little experiment this week, this double episode. As always, please write reviews on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, write me an email at DanteStack at gmail.com. Interact and go listen to Solve the World. That's my baby podcast, my fictional baby that I have to nurse into health. And I need you to listen to it so that it will become a large baby. Strong. Yes. Okay. Bye.